You've just tuned into Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past, the podcast that focuses on inspiring you to move forward from what's been holding you back in life. Each week, we talk with clinicians, coaches, mental health advocates, and those who've overcome tremendous odds and now use their journey to encourage you throughout yours. I'm Matt Pappas, Certified Coach and NLP Master Practitioner, alongside Joanne Suppressi, Author, Certified Coach, and Hypnotherapist. In addition to talking with amazing guests on the show, we share practical tips and insightful strategies that empower and encourage you to break free from anxiety, self-doubt, and the negative mindsets that keep you stuck. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Greetings, friend, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we get started, we want to take a second and just thank our incredible sponsors, INLP Center, offering world-class online neurolinguistic programming and life coach training to people in over 70 countries. If you've ever considered becoming a coach or simply want more information on their programs, just head over to inlpcenter.org and to daily recovery support. Interactive daily group calls in a safe atmosphere for survivors of complex trauma, equipping you with the skills and information you can use every single day in your healing journey. Learn more about this affordable resource and get signed up at cptsdfoundation.org. Also, we're taking some time to evaluate the direction of Beyond Your Past Radio to make sure we are bringing you the type of content you want to hear. We've created a short listener survey that we'd love for you to take that will help shape the direction and future of the podcast. It only takes one to two minutes, it's completely anonymous, and we would be so appreciative if you consider sharing your voice. You can find the survey at beyondyourpastradio.com forward slash listener survey. That's beyondyourpastradio.com forward slash listener survey. So today's guest is Dr. Wallace Mendelson. Dr. Mendelson is currently in clinical practice as a psychiatrist and formerly a professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology at the University of Chicago, as well as the director of their sleep research laboratory. His expertise in the area of sleep disorders and medications is well known, and he shares some of that knowledge with us today on the podcast. During our chat, Dr. Mendelson shares how sleeping is actually a very active state for the mind and body, including a distinct set of regulated stages of sleep. During our times of rest, the brain is active in many ways, including memory processing, cataloging, and storage, just to name a few. We discuss several types of sleep disorders, including various types of insomnia. We talk about the importance of sleep on our mental and physical health. We also discuss sleep medications and the potential adverse effects they can have, including over-the-counter meds that may not be as safe as you think. We discuss how tablets and phones affect our ability to fall asleep and stay asleep, and also their effect on our brains overall. All this and more during our chat with Dr. Wallace Mendelson, starting right now. So welcome back, Dr. Mendelson, to the podcast. It's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Well, fine. Thanks, Matt. It's very nice to get to talk with you again. Absolutely. It is an extreme pleasure. Uh, last time we chatted, uh, we were talking about uh, medications and mental health and and all of and uh, uh, talking about the book that you had written. And so I will be sure and link that episode in the show notes. And we had mentioned off air the last time about bringing you back because you were in the middle of some work uh, in the area of sleep and you were writing a book. And now that new book is out, I believe. So why don't we talk about the importance of sleep on you know our physical health, our mental health, uh, medication and all that kind of good stuff. So so before we get into that, if you want to take a minute to say hello to everyone and uh, introduce yourself, that would be great. 
Well, sure. Well, I'm Wallace Mendelson. I'm a psychiatrist and a sleep disorder uh, doctor. Uh, my particular interest is with issues of insomnia and its treatments. Uh, previously, I had written a book called The Science of Sleep, which is uh, gives a lot of the background of why we sleep and the importance of it and how the body works to uh, regulate sleep. My newer book is called Understanding Sleeping Pills by Wallace Mendelssohn. Uh, and it uh, talks about not only sleeping pills, but all kinds of treatments for insomnia. Uh, both books are available uh, as paperbacks and uh, electronic ebooks uh, on Amazon. Excellent. And I will be sure and link um, your books in the show notes as well. So why don't we start a little bit about uh, The Science of Sleep, um, which, as you mentioned, was a previous book, and just maybe share a little bit on the importance of sleep and what our bodies are doing, what our brains are doing when we're sleeping, and why it's important to get a you know a good amount of sleep every night and how that helps our bodies. And we can kind of start from there. Well, great. Well, I guess uh, the thing to remember about sleep is that uh, it's a very active state of the body. Some people kind of think that what happens when you go to sleep is your your brain just sort of kinds of quiets down and turns off. Uh, and that uh, it's sort of an image that many people use when they think of anesthesia. You know, when you, when you talk about anesthesia or listen to a doctor in the operating room, it's it's like somebody is jumping into a, a pool of water. They say, oh, he's light and he's getting deeper. Then he's leveling out. Now he's coming up again. Well, that's anesthesia, not sleep. Sleep, in contrast, is made up of a series of very discrete, well-regulated stages. And a person uh, bounces back and forth between them in a very well-described rhythmic pattern all night long. Uh, each, each of these stages uh, has various purposes related to um, a person's health. We ultimately don't know the exact functions of sleep, uh, and it probably has many more than one function. Uh, but among the important things uh, are uh, some kind of uh, restfulness for the body, uh, processes that involve memory and taking the information we learned that day and <clears throat> processing it and putting it into kinds of permanent storage. Uh, there may be a process of, of emotional healing for uh, traumas and experiences that happened during that day. Uh, the most recent work indicates that there's also a kind of uh, cleaning out of waste products in the brain that uh, there's very literally a system of, of uh, taking care of the accumulation of things that are no longer needed and may even be toxic uh, during, during sleep. So uh, sleep probably has many functions and when we don't get enough of it, uh, there can be a lot of consequences. Uh, Many of us live in a lifestyle of partial sleep deprivation. Of course, a very common pattern is to uh, 
sleep deprive ourselves during the week and then kind of crash on the weekend, uh, which is probably not a very good strategy. Chronically not getting enough sleep is associated with all sorts of problems, including, uh, not surprisingly, sleepiness, but also auto accidents and many kinds of effects on a person's health and even longevity. Uh, Now, in addition, uh, since sleep is such a well-orchestrated operation, sometimes the uh, things go wrong. And that's those are known as sleep disorders. They're usually represented by either trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep, or too much sleepiness, or excuse me, or abnormal behaviors during sleep. And we can talk about sleep disorders later if you like too. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to to discuss more of the sleep disorders, and of course, also getting into the sleeping pills, which is an area that you study. But I have a question that popped into my head that I've always kind of wondered, and I've heard various opinions on over the years. And I think it would be great to get your insight on. And that is, you mentioned obviously the importance of sleep and all of the functions that we're still learning about what happens to the body and how it's not you know, like a dormant state, like hibernation, it's, it's actually very active just in different ways. But, and you also mentioned how we often are sleep deprived because of, of any number of reasons, because there's so many things to do, because we have an odd work schedule, you know, because our um, electronics obviously can, can, can play a part in us being able to fall asleep. But is it possible, in your opinion, to ever be able to make up the sleep that you lost? And, and and by that, I mean, you mentioned about how we, you know, kind of go sleep deprived during the week, and then we try and make it up on the weekends. Can you actually make up for that kind of lost time? Well, some sleep researchers talk about the concept of a sleep debt, but it's important to know that it's a little bit different than, uh, you know, owing money to a bank, let us say. If it's a bank situation, you you pay it back, and that's the end of it. With sleep, it's a little more complicated. So to give you an example, if you sleep-deprive a person for, uh, let's say, 24 or 48 hours, and you allow them to uh, sleep as long as they want, they won't sleep, you know, the 24 or 48 hours that they miss. They'll only sleep a certain amount. I mean, to give you a personal example, as a sleep researcher, I spend many nights uh, up, you know, all night in the laboratory and then go home at eight in the morning. And most people who do that, what they find is they fall into bed, sleep very deeply for a few hours. But then let's say by noon or early afternoon, they wake up because of body rhythms and other reasons. They can't just make it up. Another way that sleep debt is different than owing money to the bank is, let's say, again, that you sleep to private person, let's say, for 24 hours. If you let them sleep as long as they want and then get them, and then when they get up, you do tests of wakefulness, it turns out they're not fully awake. And again, if you let them continue to sleep as much as they want, it's only after three or four days that their their wakefulness is all the way back to normal. So the body has some kind of a sense of remembering that it had been sleep deprived and it takes a certain amount of time to recover from that, even though you're allowed to sleep as much as you want. 
Yeah, I just I find it fascinating because uh, you know, I mean, I've learned as I've gotten older. And well, actually, let me backtrack. When I was younger, I had all kinds of energy and I was like, you know, I can go, you know, maybe four hours a night and then I wake up and go to work for eight hours and I was totally fine. Now, in, in retrospect, I don't know that I was fine, but I was just dealing with it. And, and you know, I guess maybe I was young and had more energy. But as I've gotten older, I've really understood the importance of if I don't get to bed at a decent hour, it literally, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, I don't feel awake. I don't feel alert. I certainly don't feel rested. I feel groggy. And then if I try and, you know, maybe wake it, excuse me, if I try and make it up on like a Saturday or a Sunday when I don't technically have to get up uh, for something earlier in the morning, I don't really feel that much better because my, like, I'm so trained to get up at a certain hour. I get up almost regardless. And if I do kind of doze back to sleep for a little while, I might feel a little bit better, but I really find that the older I get, the more important I find trying to get a solid at least seven hours is almost essential for me to even be able to function anymore. Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, two things that happen as we get older is one is we have a harder time dealing with sleep deprivation, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, what you just described. And the other thing is we most folks as we get older have a harder time dealing with uh, shift work kind of situations. So again, just to use example of sleep researchers, uh, you know, or people who are often up at all hours, uh, many of them find that as, uh, as young adults, you know, they could, they could easily uh, you know, work one night in the laboratory, then work the next day and vice versa and so on. But as you get older, it's much harder to do shift work or changing schedule kind of things. Yeah, that is so true. I can remember, um, you know, I used to work swing shift and that was changing shifts every three months. And that was, I mean, even when I was younger, that was incredibly hard. I mean, it was going from first shift to second shift to third shift every three months. And it was just, especially going from like third shift back to first shift was just murder. It was so hard. And it took me like literally a good three to four weeks to just recover to even feel somewhat normal again in the morning. It was just, it was so difficult. So I absolutely get the struggle. And of course, as I mentioned, the older we get, the more important it is to try and and get that regular sleep schedule. And if you don't get it, it, it seems exponentially harder to to recover and kind of make it all up. So you mentioned about sleep disorders. And if you want to touch a little bit on that in terms of maybe the different types of sleep disorders and kind of why they happen, I think that would be great. Well, sure. Um, well, again, there's many, many different kinds. So it, it, we can only, you know, touch on a few. But the, as I mentioned earlier, the common element is that regardless of the cause, there's really only three basic ways that they're manifest. The one would be having trouble going to sleep or staying asleep. One would be disorders of excessive sleepiness. And uh, another one would be uh, um, abnormal behaviors in sleep, like sleepwalking, sleep talking, uh, uh, you know, uh, things of that nature. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about um, um, insomnia to begin with. There, so there are many, many different reasons that a person could have difficulty going to sleep or staying asleep. And and when I say this, I'm talking about long-term things that happen frequently, not the 
acute sleep disturbance you might have after some upsetting event on one day. I'm talking more about people who have difficulty three or four nights at least a week, you know, for months or even years at a time. There can be many different kinds of causes of chronic insomnia. And one of the first things a, a sleep doctor like me does when a person comes to the office describing insomnia is to go back to, to a number of these uh, by history. One is to find um, if the sleep difficulty is due to uh, a, a medical kind of illness. Uh, and just the whole range of me medical disorders can result in, in disturbed sleep. Um, another important one is medicines that a person might be taking for a, a, a variety of reasons. Uh, can cause sleep disturbance, things like uh, some uh, nose-drying medicines, some asthma medicines, uh, uh, thyroid medicines. It, it was a huge list that one would think about so if, if you're dealing with somebody who's having trouble sleep. Um, certainly another cause can be um, psychiatric disorders and the most important of these for this purpose, I think, is major depression. Um, 80 or 90 percent of people who have serious depression have a lot of trouble sleeping and sometimes they they focus on the sleep and don't really realize uh, that they're depressed. Now the reason that's so important for a doctor in my specialty is that if um, if a person really has major depression then a sleeping pill, at least by itself, is not the right medicine. Sleeping pills don't don't help depression. They for depression you need antidepressants or some special kinds of psychotherapy that are oriented to depression. Uh, and usually the sleep will get better as the depression gets better. Uh, some doctors have found that adding a sleeping pill to the regime of an antidepressant can can be effective both for the sleep and the and the depression. But I I would emphasize that that's uh, adding a second medicine, not not the primary treatment. There are a number of kinds of chronic insomnia. After you rule out medical illnesses, medicines, psychiatric illnesses, etc., uh, one of them is called conditioned insomnia. In that situation, a uh, person has something disturbing happen to them that would lead anybody to have, you know, in the short term, some bad sleep. But what happens in this case is a, a person will kind of heal from the original upset that caused them to sleep poor, uh, poorly. So even though the upset has gotten better, the sleep disturbance takes on a life of its own. And then what will happen very often is the uh, the fear of not sleeping becomes the problem. It's a little bit like the Franklin Roosevelt saying about the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So there are some kind of techniques for deconditioning that, that fear experience um, to help those people. Um, another kind of interesting form of insomnia is 
called subjective insomnia. Now, in that case, what happens is that uh, a person misunderstands their own state of consciousness. So what I mean by this is uh, a person like this will come to the laboratory saying, you know, I only sleep two hours a night and it's, it's killing me. Uh, so, you know, you've got to do something. So we'll put them in the laboratory, study them. And as soon as you turn out the lights, you know, they, their breathing quiets, their brain waves change to sleeping patterns. They look like they're sleeping and they lie that way for eight hours. And in the morning, you come in and turn on the lights and wake them up. And this person who, according to the brain waves and behavior, who were sleeping all night, look up at you and say, see, doctor, I told you I wouldn't sleep. So what happens is their their experience is that they're awake, even though their physiology seems to show they're asleep. And this is called subjective insomnia, and it's a very common, uh, very difficult uh, kind of thing to treat. Well, I guess moving on from insomnias, um, there are many disorders of excessive sleepiness. Um, Certainly, the queen of these probably is known as narcolepsy, which is a disorder of a person being sleep sleepy almost all of the time, having uh, sleep attacks, which are just irresistible episodes of falling asleep that happen, you know, in situations where you just couldn't believe somebody would fall asleep, and these are often accompanied by other symptoms including one called cataplexy which are sudden attacks of feeling very weak or even collapsing uh, to the ground for 30 seconds or a minute Um, and other secondary symptoms including hypnagogic hallucinations which are vivid dreamlike experiences um, and just as you're going off to sleep or waking up and narcolepsy is a very common illness uh, that happens uh, typically in uh, late childhood or teen or young adults. And it's a lifelong illness, so it's very important to recognize it and treat it. Um, another kind of disorder that causes excessive sleepiness is called obstructive sleep apnea. And this is an issue in which a person's breathing is relatively normal during the daytime. But when they go to sleep at night, the muscles of the throat (coughs) uh, relax too much and allow it to collapse so that breathing is impaired. And then the person will have multiple episodes of not being able to breathe at night. Uh, What happens is that when they cease breathing, uh, a mechanism and their physiology causes them to briefly wake up and then they start breathing again. This can happen hundreds of times a night and result in uh, feeling that sleep isn't restful, uh, the sleepiness in the daytime, and it can be associated with a wide range of medical illnesses. Uh, There's many treatments for sleep apnea, but a very important one is called uh, positive airway pressure, which a a device that's basically a fan in a box uh, is attached to the nose and blows air into the nose to open up the throat. There's also surgical procedures and there's also 
techniques for opening the airway during sleep. Uh, I better just stop at this point. Uh, I can go on to some other kinds of illnesses, but I don't want to give you too long an answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. It's actually, it's fascinating. And something you mentioned, well, actually, I mean, there's several things I have questions about now that are just popping up into my head as you're talking. Um, And one of them is you mentioned the fear of sleep, which I know that it's something I have struggled with. And I don't necessarily know that maybe for me, it was it was really fear, but it was this, oh my God, I have to go to sleep. I have to get enough sleep. If I go to sleep now, I'll get five hours. If I fall asleep now, I'll get four hours. And so I would psych myself up so much that if I didn't get enough sleep or if I didn't fall asleep now, I would you know, not be able to function. I was going to be late. I wouldn't be able to present, do whatever it is I was supposed to do. And so I had this almost fear of not being able to fall asleep and that would manifest itself, obviously, in anxiety, which would keep me up even more. And, you know, it was really just, I, I know a lot of people struggle with this. People have mentioned it before on this podcast in passing. Um, I've heard it countless times. And I don't know if the fear of sleep technically falls in that category, but just, re, you know, that, that struggle of, I have to fall asleep, I have to fall asleep. And then, you know, maybe you try and go to bed earlier and you can't fall asleep and then you're more frustrated. Like, it just seems like a vicious cycle. Well, you're absolutely right. And I, what I was referring to is known as uh, conditions insomnia and, and things like the fear of sleeping uh, become the problem themselves. One way that this has been uh, thought of is that a person can have uh, a certain kind of vulnerability to sleep disturbance, which we don't understand very well. That That can be complicated by you know, a disturbing event, which in the short term would cause anybody to have trouble sleeping. And then finally, uh, given those two situations, there can be factors that perpetuate the sleep disturbance. And that uh, perpetuation is the category where uh, the fear of not sleeping comes in. Uh, You also mentioned something very interesting, which is people who then say, I've got to go to bed much earlier in order to get enough sleep. Another thing that can perpetuate uh, insomnia is uh, being in bed too long, you know, without getting an adequate amount of sleep. And there's actually a a behavioral method called sleep restriction, which addresses that. In sleep restriction, what a, a doctor asks the person to keep kind of a sleep diary, and the diary will say how many hours I was in bed last night and how many hours did I actually think I slept. So let's say a person brings in a diary and it says on average I was in bed 10 hours and I think I only slept six hours. Well, then what will happen is the therapist will say, well, now I want you to just stay in bed six hours. And let's see how much you sleep. And then when the diary shows that a person sleeps most of that six hours, they increase it to six and a half, and they increase it to seven, and so on. So the idea is to make sleep much more efficient uh, in case the situation of, of being in bed much too long has taken effect. You also, of course, have to take precautions about being too sleepy you know, while the sleep restriction has gone on. I should say that everything that we've talked about, the business of addressing the fear of not sleeping, the uh, topic of sleep restriction for too long a 
times in bed. These are all part of the main kind of psychotherapy for or talking therapy for insomnia, which are called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is abbreviated as CBTI. And CBTI is, is a full package of, uh, of techniques to, to help uh, a person get their sleep back in order. And in many cases, uh, CBTI can be equally effective as sleeping medicines. And its proponents would argue that uh, not only is it as effective, but that its benefits last for a longer time. And these are issues that sleep professionals, you know, argue about and so on. But the, there's a pretty good case to be made that CBTI is very often just as useful as sleeping medicines uh, and, and may last longer. The benefits of it are that it's not terribly prolonged. People hear the word psychotherapy and they they think of images of going to a psychoanalyst four times a week for months or years. And it's nothing like that. It's a kind of treatment that goes on for usually two or three months, a very short-term kind of thing. The benefits of CBT have, have helped me tremendously, <clears throat> not in the areas of sleep, although I'm now unbelievably curious. So I'm, I'm going to research CBTI because it sounds fascinating. But I know CBT in general helped me a lot when I was working through uh, tra- trauma recovery with a therapist. So I know it's incredibly helpful. And I'm definitely going to research more about this. Um, the other thing before we get into your, your latest book is something else that I know so many people in today's modern age deal with, and that is electronics. Um, you know, your phone, your tablet, uh, computer, laying in bed, that kind of stuff. You know, you're, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I lay in bed at night and I'm like, I can't really sleep. What's going on on my phone? Well, of course, you know, your mind starts engaging when you're on your phone and you're scrolling through and, you know, obviously it doesn't really help you sleep. If you can maybe talk about the struggles a little bit or the challenges or um, how electronics can really kind of um, essentially, I guess, mess with your brain or your body to keep you from being able to get that desired result of sleeping. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, a lot of the work uh, documenting the use of tablets and similar devices uh, in the bedroom with, with trouble sleeping has focused on children uh, who seem to be particularly vulnerable for this. And I was interested to see that just during this past week, a a national pediatrics organization came out with a recommendation of, of very, very much limiting screen time uh, in the, in young children. But speaking for all of us and not just children, uh, a number of things can happen. Part of it is that uh, screens emit light, which uh, can disturb or block the release of melatonin, which is a naturally occurring hormone from the brain that helps tell the rest of the body, hey, it's time uh, to go to sleep. And that's certainly one of the causes of the sleep disturbance related to tablets. The other, I think, is just the simulation, you know, of being engaged with, uh, with a tablet during a time when you should be trying to relax and clear your mind and being able to go to sleep. 
The other thing I, I, I always think is kind of interesting is you'll, you'll see a lot of people who wake up in the morning or wake up after a nap, and the first thing they do before they even get out of bed is check the email. And, and that, that certainly shows an awfully heavy level of involvement with, with your electronics that, that probably is not very good for for sleep or, or well-being. Yeah, I tell you, it's, it is. like It's the default thing. When, when I wake up, what's the first thing I do? I reach for my phone. I'm not necessarily for email, but just like I see if somebody texted me in the middle of the night or I've, I've been consciously forcing myself to not reach for my phone the very first thing. You know, I get up and get a drink or do whatever I'm doing and I wait until I'm a little more conscious and, and just really able to function before I reach for my phone. And I find it helps because if I'm, if I'm kind of just waking up and I'm not really all together there yet, as I like to say, for me to try and focus on reading an email or, or, or a text or something, I have to focus really hard and then it gets frustrating and I, and I'm, I'm pushing myself to try and get moving before I'm actually ready. And certainly before I've had coffee, which is a whole nother thing, but you're right. I think it's, it's, it's just something so, you know, for as amazing as tablets and phones and, and, you know, technology is when it's time to go to sleep, I really have, and, uh, you know, really taken to the idea of turn off the phone. I play, uh, I use like a sleep machine that plays ambient sounds, which I find helps me tremendously because it's nothing I have to really focus on. It's just background noise or, you know, and it really helps me to be able to just zone out and not think about anything and eventually fall asleep. So that's really worked for me. And, you know, I, I think it's just something that I found I had to really adjust to consciously say that when I go to bed, I put it on do not disturb. I don't check it anymore until I wake up and I'm ready to start functioning and do whatever it is my day entails. And so um, I want to move on now a little bit to uh, your book, your latest book um, that you've written is called Understanding Sleeping Pills. It's available on Amazon. And as I said, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. But if you want to talk a little bit about the book and uh, sleeping pills and kind of, you know, your, your, your reason for writing it. And um, as you mentioned here in just the opening segment of your book on Goodreads, one in 10 Americans suffers from chronic insomnia. Many receive sleeping pills and over-the-counter sleep aids at an annual cost of over 40 billion. So we know it's a gigantic industry and, and, you know, it's everything from melatonin over the counter to, you know, God knows what else right now. So if you want to talk about that, I think it'd be great. Well, sure. Um, well, the purpose of writing my book is very simple. I, I felt that there's a lot of information out there, but that it's not available in in terms that can be easily accessible and easily understood by um, you know folks who don't have technical or medical training. And my my effort was to try to express what's going on with insomnia and its treatments, particularly sleeping pills, in a way that, that can be easily understood. Um, now, one reason I think that's very important is that uh, if you have insomnia and go to a doctor, it's very important not to be a, uh, a passive recipient of the treatment. In other words, a sleeping pill shouldn't be something that happens to you. It should be part of a choice that you make. And so a person should really be a kind of equal partner with a doctor in making the, the best decisions for his or her treatment. And the first step toward being a partner is to have the knowledge you need to make the decisions. And I've tried to make an effort to make a lot of this knowledge uh, 
available and accessible. If a person does have chronic insomnia, as I've mentioned before, the first step a doctor usually takes is to rule out possible causes like uh, interference with sleep due to another medicine or to a medical illness or to depression. And when those kinds of things have been ruled out, and when you've ruled out uh, even some of the sleep disorders that can cause either insomnia or excessive sleepiness, like like uh, sleep apnea, for instance, uh, then a person is faced with some choices about treatment. And one of the main choices is, is medication or uh psychotherapy such as CBT. And uh, again, the f- number of factors go into that. Uh, medicine usually works more rapidly initially, although there are issues of whether once you stop it, the benefits are as long-lasting as after therapy. So there, there are many kinds of things to consider. If you do decide to go the route of medications, um, there are many different kinds, and those are what I, I, I discuss in the book. The history of, of sleeping medicines you know, goes back hundreds or even thousands of years, of course. Um, but the sort of modern history, let us say, began in the turn of the 20th century with the development of barbiturates, which were very potent drugs, but they also have many bad qualities. Uh, they were drugs of abuse. Uh, they were very toxic in overdose. They could suppress respiration and many other kinds of problems. Uh, in the 19, late 1950s, um, a new class of drugs known as benzodiazepines or benzos came along, which were um, initially hailed as being uh, much safer, and in many senses they were. They they were less toxic in overdose when taken by a healthy person by themselves. Uh, they can be very toxic when combined with alcohol or other drugs. And uh, although they are they too are dependence producing, they 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 are to a lesser degree than the barbiturates and so on. And they seem to disturb the brain waves less than earlier kinds of drugs. So the benzodiazepines were hailed as a great improvement. They too, as as the many years have gone by now, we realize that they too have a number of limitations. Um, the long-acting ones, like fluorazepam, can make a person chronically sleepy in the daytime if taken night after night. All of them, to one degree or another, can cause sleep disturbance uh, when you first stop them, which is why it's important to stop them very slowly. In the 1980s, uh, some newer medicines came along, which we now, just in kind of slang terms, call the Z drugs, because they have names like Zolpidem and Zopiclone. They were, were great improvements over the benzodiazepines um, in many ways. They, they too are less toxic in overdose when taken alone and not in combination where they too can be toxic. They seem to uh, disturb the sleep architecture less. 
and for a variety of reasons, they seem more specific for sleep and to have less involvement in other systems, such as your motor control and memory problems that uh, have come up with benzodiazepines. So there have been a number of steps over the years. Now there's even newer ones available. Uh, there's one called Suvorexin, which works by an entirely different mechanism than the older drugs. And there's also now the, a new use for an old drug, an antidepressant called doxepin, given in very low doses. Uh, turns out to be useful for people who have uh, trouble with awakenings during the night. Well, in this sort of long-winded answer, what I've tried to say is that uh, there's a succeeding generations of drugs that have come out, and each one has had improvements in terms of safety and effectiveness over the previous ones. We still don't have the perfect medication, but uh, they're getting better and better. And yeah, absolutely. There is there's so much we could talk about this with. And something you mentioned, I know a lot of concern people have with with taking medications of any type, obviously. But since we're talking about sleep meds here. The, the worry of becoming dependent on them or addicted to them. And I know so often when you, when you get over-the-counter um, medications, it'll say non-habit-forming. I still feel like this twinge of if I use this too often, I'm going to become dependent on it. Because I know there are times, we talked about this earlier, about having uh, uh, intermittent problems with sleeping where maybe it's because you're sick or because there's like a major life change or something going on that's not chronic, but it happens, you know, and affects you for a few days or a week and then it kind of passes. And during those times, I would often reach for some type of sleep aid, whether it was in a medication for a cold or whether it was just... Um, something that was just designed to help me sleep. And when I stopped using it, I found myself for at least the first couple of days having trouble falling back asleep again because I was subconsciously or otherwise wanting to, to, to take that pill again or drink that cup of medicine to try and help me fall asleep. And now eventually, admittedly, it did pass, but it was something where it's kind of in the back of my mind whenever I take something that is quote unquote non-habit forming is there a way for the body to still become dependent on and even with something with like melatonin or, you know, some of the over-counter sleep aids that are, you know, not for colds, but just for sleep? Well, most of the medicines that I've mentioned are indeed uh, dependence producing and, and restricted medicines. And that certainly includes the, um, the benzo, the barbiturate, certainly the benzos uh, and the Z drugs and suvorexin. There are a few sleeping pills that, are not considered to be dependence producing, and those would include um, uh, Remeldion, which is a uh, melatonin receptor acting drug, and another one is Doxepin, the antidepressant I mentioned, are, are drugs that are not uh, considered dependence producing. Now, with all sleeping pills, it's very important to decrease the dose gradually and to stop them gradually and not just, you know, cold turkey to try to help avoid, you know, what you've just described. But I'd like to turn our attention to the over-the-counter sleep aids you mentioned, and I'd like to suggest something that you may not have considered, and that is a lot of folks will say, well, you know, if it's sold over the counter without a prescription, 
it may not help, but it must be a lot safer. Well, it turns out that's not necessarily true. Um, and a very important case in point is the antihistamine diet, diet called diphenhydramine that's found in a lot of over-the-counter sleep aids. Um, it, it's not at all a completely benign substance. Um, first of all, the studies that show that it helps sleep are not very good. Um, most of them you know, have found minimal benefits, and one even found that at the 50 milligram dose, it can disturb sleep. And secondly, uh, they're certainly not benign. They they can cause daytime sleepiness. To me, uh, a much more serious one is that in the elderly, they can cause confusional states or falls or delirium. And there's even studies now that people who take them nightly for long periods of time may have a higher rate of developing dementia later in old age. So, so um, diphenhydramine, even though over-the-counter, is far from a benign substance. Uh, you also mentioned melatonin. Um, it is true, indeed, that melatonin is a naturally occurring substance, and of course, that sounds very appealing. But it turns out that it can be useful in two or three very specialized conditions related to sleep. One of these, for instance, is in uh, managing jet lag and shift work. Another one is in a, a condition called phase lag syndrome, where a person's body clock is set to a different time than the rest of the world. So there are some very specialized conditions where melatonin can be helpful. But for most people with chronic insomnia who don't have one of these specialized body clock problems, data on melatonin is is not very convincing. And in fact, the um, the recommendations from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine uh, are that neither diphenhydramine nor melatonin are recommended for chronic insomnia. This is fascinating, Dr. Mendelson. I could go on for hours talking to you, but I want to respect your time. And I will just say on the on the topic of melatonin real quick, I tried it for me, you know, during those intermittent times, like I mentioned, where I wasn't like chronic insomnia, but I had something going on that was keeping me awake. I tried it and that stuff, it made me jittery and nauseous. So I stopped taking it. So like, I, I might be the only person on the planet. I have no idea who took melatonin and actually had the reverse effect of feeling jittery and, and just unable to sleep. And it was, I felt like, did I do something wrong by taking something that is apparently supposed to help me sleep? And of course I have not taken it since, but I tried it literally for a couple of days just to see. And it did not work for me at all, so I really don't ever take it again. But I just thought that was kind of interesting when you were talking about melatonin. Absolutely, and it's and, a, and it's a great reminder that just because something doesn't require prescription doesn't necessarily mean that it's that's safe. You are absolutely right. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendelson, for joining us. I always appreciate talking to you. Um, we will definitely bring you back um, because uh, your first uh, podcast was amazing. This one I learned so much on. So um, I know there's so many more aspects of sleep we can talk about. But if we want to wrap this up for this episode and you can tell everybody where to find your books and find you online, that would be great. Well, thanks so much. Well, my name again is Wallace Mendelson, M-E-N-D-E-L-S-O-N. And my books, uh, The Science of Sleep and Understanding Sleeping Pills, 
are both available as electronic ebooks and as paperbacks uh, on Amazon. Excellent. And I will, I will be sure and link those in the show notes. And of course, everybody can follow you on Amazon. Of course, um, all your books are listed on Goodreads as well, which is where I follow some of your books. So it's really great. So thanks again, uh, doctor. This has been amazing. And I, I can't wait to chat with you again in the future. I like that very much. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should supersede the direction of a medical doctor or any mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. We would sure appreciate it. Also, please consider sharing this episode with someone who may find it helpful. If you would like more information on working with Matt as your coach, just head over to beyondyourpast.com and schedule your free one-hour chat. If you'd like to learn more about working with Joanne as your coach, please check out joannesuppressi.com and contact her for more information. We're always on the lookout for new guests. If you're interested in joining us on an upcoming episode, just head over to beyondyourpastradio.com and contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.